Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are back once again uh, with a more traditional episode. Hopefully you uh, you enjoyed our deep dive into a uh, almost famous last, uh, last episode. Um, I know we did. Uh, once again, my name is Terry Plucknett. I am your host. Joining me, as always, are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Uh, Todd, how much do you wish you were in Vegas for conference championship week? Uh... Yeah, I would do anything to be there right now. <laughs> Pretty much. I, I think I think we need to plan a plan our next Vegas trip around uh, Championship Week. Like I, that would be amazing. I think we go there for the Oscars, but stay until Championship Week. <laughs> now we're talking. <laughs> if we could survive yes. that long, I don't know. It's questionable. <laughs> Todd, Todd, would you would you have put money on uh, on Nebraska to win their first two games in the tournament? Uh, no. I mean, I I might have thought about uh, the spread on those games, so I wouldn't have actually picked them to win either game. And I, I have a feeling I don't know what the line was, but they had to have covered against Wisconsin too, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, they should have won that game. They were battling, and uh, like they only had six scholarship players that were healthy in that game, so they had some guy named Johnny Trueblood. <laughs> was like playing he's like this like six foot lefty white guard and it, it was pretty bizarre but uh tim miles came out at halftime and said like we need to just play more hero ball because that's all we have is three players <laughs> and they still should have won the game <laughs> uh he he might have saved his job in the in the uh tournament performance there yeah one thing i think is interesting so everyone's all talked about zion williamson and uh who he reminds him of I heard two really interesting comparisons this week, one of which was uh, Antonio Gates, which I think is a pretty sound argument because he's like a big a big guy, he's like a football guy, you know, so I think that's an interesting comparison I can see that. for a basketball player, because he actually was a really good basketball player, he wasn't just like, you know, Austin Sverian Jenkins going out there or in order to get two rebounds and six fouls or whatever. <laughs> and the other one that I thought was interesting was Rodney Rogers, which is someone I had completely forgotten about, but I could totally see that type of athleticism and stuff and lefty thing being it. He's like Rodney Rogers with speed, because Rodney Rogers was not. Well, at the end of his career, I mean, now he's like paralyzed. Yeah. But, when, when, but like in his prime, he was he was pretty pretty athletic. I mean, he, same with like Barkley and whatever. But I don't know. Yeah, those are interesting. Uh, Zach, how far is Rock Chalk going to go? Um, I would be impressed if they made it to uh, uh, the round of 32. Yeah, they're not all we're hoping good. for. <laughs> this is the worst Kansas team I've seen in my lifetime. Maybe. I don't know. Lifetime watching basketball. They're, they're terrible. But, just, okay, but di- didn't they... Are, they're in the conference final, right? Or well, did yeah, they win? They lost yeah. today to Iowa yeah. State. Iowa oh, State they lost to them. It was a blowout. It was over in the first two minutes. They're terrible. They're going to lose to a 14 seed, and uh, I don't think anyone here will lose sleep over it. Yep, yep. It, it'll be. It's always fun. The the next like week or two are is like some of the best, 
the best sports of of the entire year with uh with march madness kicking into full gear um all right uh so uh zach what are you drinking oh well yesterday was my birthday and uh shall we say i had uh maybe a little too much fun on my birthday is a polite way of putting it so um tonight i'm just recovering and enjoying some agua fria you, you you drank plenty for the podcast yesterday. Exactly. Yeah, it's like that scene in Sideways when uh, you know Jack, uh, Jack kind of subtly indicates to Miles to slow down a little bit. I'm slowing down. <laughs> there was a tasty last night for sure. <laughs> Multiple. <laughs> All right. Well, Todd, what are you drinking? Well, since tomorrow is uh, St. Patrick's Day, I have a giant stein of Guinness Drought. So that is what I am. That is a giant stein. <laughs> yeah, two entire bottles of Guinness uh, are in this this cup. So you know, here it's imposing. It's only half full. Yeah, well, technical difficulties, uh. you know. <laughs> we I actually have some Guinness downstairs, but uh, we've been enjoying that throughout the week. No, I've got um, for for the podcast. Uh, my wife went out and got me some beer that was on clearance because she thought it sounded like a cool beer to have for a podcast. And it truly is. Uh, so, uh, shout out to Zach's hometown. This is from hop Valley brewing company out of Eugene, Oregon. This is their cryo stash IPA. Um, it's pretty good. It's, it's a, it's definitely got a bite to it. And the best part about it, 8.7 on the ABV. Nice. So, uh, so there, there's some definite alcohol in here, and uh, and yeah, it's it, which makes it the perfect podcast beer. So, cheers. You could work in a wine store, Miles. Mm. <clears throat> That'd be a good move. Are you chewing gum? Well, as always, thank you so much for uh, for listening in. Please find us on iTunes. Subscribe, rate, review. Uh, that really helps us be uh, be seen and heard by more people. You can check us out all over the internet. Uh, if you check out our Facebook page or my Twitter feed, you'll be seeing my uh, my baseball preview articles are going up. I got a little behind. But I'm trying to get caught back up so that I'm uh, I'm revealing my World Series pick by uh, by opening day. Um, you also find us almostsideways.com. Our thousands of movie reviews there. I'm a little behind on that as well. Hopefully, I'll be getting caught up on that soon too. All right. It's time to hop into our movie review. And this is where uh, one of those podcasts where Zach says we're, we're definitely going for the clickbait here. Because this is one of the, uh, one of the more mainstream uh, looks we have in our, uh, in our podcast. We usually go for some of, the, some of the more art house type stuff. But no, we're diving all the way in on Captain Marvel and the MCU today. Uh, so we're all going to be uh, talking about Captain Marvel a little bit. Um, Todd, why don't you give us, uh, give us what Captain Marvel's about and what your thoughts are. And you're a Kree, a race of noble warriors. Heroes. Noble warrior heroes. All right, so Captain Marvel is written and directed by Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck. And they are the directing writing duo who brought us Half Nelson and It's Kind of a Funny Story. 
So, uh, pretty good movies, and, uh, this movie is one that was marked by immediate backlash by, like, internet trolls who hadn't really seen the movie yet, but, and then the reviews came in, they were careful not to say anything controversial, but honestly, the trolls were pretty much right, I mean, the movie is pretty, pretty atrocious, uh, yeah, it's the the movie would wouldn't really exist without the tie-in to the Avengers saga. The next one is coming out next month, but it's just another replaceable, lackluster origin story, and uh, and we don't really care about the character other than like how she fits into the MCU. But uh, Captain Marvel is Carol Danvers, uh, played by Brie Larson, and she is a Kree alien fighter pilot of sorts. And she's abducted by some shapeshifters called Scrolls, uh, and they wipe out her memory before she escapes and lands in a blockbuster in L.A. See, like, yeah, it's the '90s, you know, because we've got Radio Shack, you got Nirvana. See, we're being creative here, you know, very '90s. Uh, this is where she inter- interacts with the MCU for the first time uh, because Nick Fury and Phil Coulson are there to investigate, and they join forces to. Retrieve the Tesseract, which is the energy core that you see in the other movies. And there are double crosses and more double crosses and you, uh, stuff that probably won't make sense unless you've uh, read the comics, which I haven't because I have a life. Um, the movie <laughs> oh, is like painfully uh, derivative of basically every other movie. Uh, the, the opening scene I first thought was like, wait, uh, is she like training to be a Jedi? And then the next scene, I realized that's exactly what she was doing. Like, everything down to, like, the Kree philosophy is, like, Jedi at its core. But this movie just seems like a low-rent Star Wars ripoff. And, uh, like, Fury and Coulson, their whole thing is just, like, knocking off of uh, Men in Black pretty pretty obviously. And then there's some pretty clear Mission Impossible things because, like, these shapeshifters... Uh, like, there's, like, the, they make it seem like it's just sh- so shocking that you don't really know who they actually are because you don't really know who's wearing a mask. It's like, yeah, okay, I've seen that before. And, uh, they basically de-age Samuel Jackson to look just like he did in, uh, in, uh, Triple X. And the diner scene in Triple X is recreated in a bar in this movie. There's also, like, a Charlie's Angels ripoff flashback scene. And the main scroll is played by Ben Mendelsohn, and his name is Talos. But uh, he looks just like Ivan Ooze, and he sounds like him, and he's just green. <laughs> the only thing that distinguishes him from Ivan Ooze is that he, he, when he yells, he sounds just like a Wookiee. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's an impressive group of actors, but they're all really are miscast. Like, Brie Larson, Brie Larson is a ter- terrific actress, but like he, she's just so wooden. This movie needed to star like Scarlett Johansson, but unfortunately, her and every other actress in Hollywood are already in the MCU. Uh, Annette Benning and Jude Law are just head-scratching and horrible casting choices. Ben Mendelsohn's good, but he was wearing that stupid Power Rangers bad guy CGI face that you don't actually get to see him. Uh, but the movie really just belongs to Samuel Jackson. It, it actually is kind of good when he's on screen. He has good, a lot of good one-liners. And uh, my buddy Josh, who I saw the movie with, uh, uh, said about the cat that he's got the whole time that they should have made some joke about it being octopusy, which... Uh, would have been a great joke and probably the funniest thing in the movie, but they unfortunately didn't think that far ahead when his tentacles come out. Uh, I don't know. It's got a fair amount of humor in this. It's really bad, but it's not necessarily unwatchable like Green Lantern or Suicide Squad, but, I mean, it's just a misfire in basically every way. I think if they wanted to introduce this character, they should have just made, like, a 
extended version of the mid credit scene because that's the only reason why this like this character is even existing. Uh, the action is kind of cheesy. I don't really buy Brie Larson as an action star. And, uh, I don't know, they make her out to be some, like, hybrid between Jean Grey and Superman, so she's obviously going to kick Thanos' ass in Endgame. Like, girl power, woohoo! Yeah, I don't really care. I'm not going to watch this movie again. <laughs> I give it a generous one and a half stars. Wow. All right. That, that might have been the hottest take Todd has ever had on a movie. That was amazing. He's going to get the clickbait. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Zach. Tell us why Todd is either right or wrong. Well, I, I mean, uh, it's it's hard to follow that. Okay, I gotta compose myself. <laughs> um, well, I'm gonna put myself out there and say that I hate the MCU. I think it's destroyed uh, movies. I think it's you know people want to talk about the death of film, the death of cinema, and uh, the MCU. Like you know, every the, the one of the big stories uh, post Oscars was you know Steven Spielberg trashing Netflix, and now we have this you know debate Netflix versus theatrical release. No, okay, that's that's not the debate we should be having. The debate we should be having is is how the MCU is destroying movies. So like you look at Anna Boden and, and Ryan Fleck. Okay, these are inc- these are very very talented filmmakers. Um, um, another movie that that you didn't mention uh, was uh, Sugar, um, their movie about mm-hmm. uh, the baseball uh, star, and they've directed episodes of Billions, and they also did Mississippi Grind. I mean, these are great filmmakers, and I would love to see them with a one hundred fifty million dollar budget make like their own story. Okay, um, I mean, not to you know, not to say that they they didn't do a, a, a tasteful job with this movie, and it looks really good, and and, and the, the action I think is fine, but it's like. I, you know, we see these great casts and these great filmmakers just get pigeonholed by this really stupid uh, cinematic universe. So that's my rant on that. Um, that being said, uh, I liked the movie quite a bit more than Todd. Um, I liked uh, Brie Larson as uh, the main role, Captain Marvel. I think uh, she uh, actually emotes pretty well. She brings a lot of energy to the role. And um, I think uh, there are ways that this movie could have done this character incorrectly like for example if they'd had to have some some type of romantic subplot like we saw in wonder woman i think that would have been a total misfire and then there's also sequences where the movie tries to like um undermine her by you know showing uh the the sexism whether subtle or overt that she's experienced her whole life and the way that she responds to that i think is really empowering and i like that the way that filmmakers treated that material um, I will say the first 20 to 25 minutes of this movie were pretty awful. Um, I didn't understand what was happening at all, and I really didn't care. Um, but once the movie transforms itself into this kind of like pseudo-hip Guardians of the Galaxy-esque uh, homage to the 1990s, I have to confess I was kind of hooked. Um, I, I didn't want to be. I wanted to be really cynical about it because I, you know, I, we knew that the, the direction that they were going to go in the minute that she landed at the blockbuster. But uh, visually, the movie was a lot brighter and it was a, a lot more energetic than the kind of deathly hollow pace of the first 25 minutes, which made no sense at all. Um, so... Uh, I was sort of suckered into that. I liked the same, like Todd said, I thought Samuel Jackson had some good one-liners. The cat kind of stole the show, but there wasn't maybe too much of a show to be stolen. I mean, Todd's kind of right. This is a very, very traditional orthodoxy uh, Marvel origin story with really nothing new and nothing particularly that innovative about the character of Captain Marvel or Carol Danvers. 
Um, but I think it's really cool seeing a female uh, protagonist in a Marvel movie. Why have, why hasn't that happened uh, already? This is long overdue, and I think there are some really uh, empowering um, moments in the movie that uh, I think younger audiences appreciate. I mean, look, I'm not the I'm not the demographic for this movie. Okay, I think the MCU is evil and is destroying cinema. So if if we're gonna get to what you know, um, some some tangible currency that they can have for improving the world that we live in why not then spotlight characters who aren't always white men and i think the movie this time does a really good job of that so i certainly support that um and uh there like todd said there are parts in the movie that are funny i don't know i enjoyed myself i only checked my watch maybe three times which is pretty good for an action movie over two hours in length and uh, i really hate the internet trolls they can uh themselves oh sorry okay uh and uh, because of that and other reasons, I'm giving this a solid three stars. All right. Those are about as, as polar opposite as you can get there. Uh, so my opinion, I'm somewhere in between you guys. Um, I, I see Todd's point, and I thought it was, it was kind of, uh, in some ways, it was kind of a useless movie. It was a, it was a pointless movie. It reminded me a little bit of Thor. Uh, the first Thor movie where it was just this very traditional kind of uninteresting origin story just to bring the character that's going to be a, a major part of the MCU moving forward just to bring him into the mix. And I felt kind of the same way about Captain Marvel. I will say I found Captain Marvel to be a very interesting character. I just found the movie to not be that interesting around her. Um, with with that said, like I said, I think I think Captain Marvel's an interesting character. I think Brie Larson does does uh, does a good job. However, I also agree it was kind of an interesting casting choice. But then I realized the reason why is because Brie Larson is kind of this has this perfect like girl next door vibe to her, and you never see a girl next door superhero. I mean, it, it's it's either someone that's exotic or this super um, super you, almost masculine woman that takes on uh that takes on a, a role like that and instead we have brie larson who is who is very much uh, just kind of i mean she's she's amazing in it but she's not what you would picture to be a superhero and um she's just kind of your your average girl and and she rocks this performance because of it um I think she's, it's going to be really interesting how it all plays out uh, in Avengers Endgame. And like, like Todd said, that was really what everyone was waiting for, is how is this going to, to affect what's going to happen in the next Avengers movie? Um, but yeah, I, I mean, the movie was okay. The character is good. I'm excited for what's going to happen next now, so it, it served its purpose. Um, I'm giving it two and a half stars, so in between you guys... Um, one thing I'll say to Zach, um, when you're saying you think the MCU is ruining uh, ruining movies, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the cause, but it's definitely a sign of the problem. Because I, I think Hollywood was already moving this direction 10 years ago when the MCU started, and it, it just took advantage of that and has exploited it for all it's worth. So, um, so I wouldn't necessarily say it, it's, it's the thing that's ruining it, but it's definitely taking advantage of the culture that is ruining it. 
Yeah, I mean, I just wish that in 20 years we could look back and say, you know, we had Robert Downey Jr. and uh, uh, Scarlett Johansson and Mark Ruffalo and, and all these great actors in, like, a great movie, okay? Instead of just having this uh, hodgepodge of A-list celebrities in this $200 million expendable storyline. Okay, so uh, one thing Terry said that I don't really agree is, like, you don't have any superheroes that look like her. I think that she looks just like Batgirl and she looks just like Supergirl in that one TV show. So I don't I don't really I don't really understand that comparison, but I don't I, I just I, I feel like this movie just needed to be something more, especially since she carries the name of the universe in her name, right? Like I mean, th- this movie was so plain and boring. Do you really want Marvel to have its name plastered on this on this pretty lousy movie? I don't. I I feel like this is a this is a bad idea from from like the start. Well, I mean, look at, look at, like I said, compared to Thor, I still think the first Thor movie is probably the worst movie in the MCU so far. Right. Well, and, I, was on, and, I was actually on Adam Daily Live and we were uh, ranking our, uh, our Marvel movies and I had the Thor movie as the worst one and I had this one as the third worst. And yeah, so I, I mean, I do like all the origin stories pretty much suck, uh, but, except, but, except for, I mean, except for like Captain America, first Avenger. And, and it's, I don't know, like, it's, I don't it's, it's difficult to really understand exactly why we needed this movie, because, I mean, they've had characters come in and out, and we care about them way more than we do about Captain Marvel, like, even Thanos, I feel like we have more of a connection to Thanos than we do Captain Marvel, and he didn't have his own movie. So, anyways, what I was gonna say with that is, Thor is, like, one, one of, if not the worst movie of the MCU, yet, that movie set up a primary character in every Avengers movie after that, and set up the first major villain, which is one of the best villains of the MCU, and that's Loki. So, I mean, it seems like the movies where their focus is to set up what's going to happen instead of do something important for that character, you get a crappy movie, but you get something that's going to be important later but unfortunately we had two thor sequels which were also two of the worst movies that there are in the mcu and dark world was bad i, I love ragnarok yeah though. ragnarok wasn't bad no i mean it was pretty bad but i mean if we get two <laughs> captain marvel sequels then i'm really going to be upset because that would be a, an absolute disaster the internet trolls won't allow it too well, much backlash the, they were right they were right that this movie sucked they just hadn't seen it yet to have it proven I think it's what we call a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think if you go into this movie wanting to bash it and wanting to, you know, hate the idea of a female-led Marvel superhero or just skeptical of the whole premise overall, then you're going to find stuff in this movie that absolutely reaffirms your opinion. But if you go into this movie open-minded and, you know, try to be open to those new experiences and new characters and, and new situations, then I think there, there's enough in this movie for it to be worth be be worth seeing and, and worth the experience i wanted to like it i love annabode and ryan fleck like i i was going into this movie actually excited to watch one of these movies for once and i was just like from the opening scene i was like this movie is going to be trash well i'm not talking about you todd you're informed i'm talking about the, <laughs> the, the, the internet trolls you know they're just going to come in and you know pick, you know, pick out whatever they want to pick out and use it as as the you know the mudslinging campaign that they're gonna have I will say I was I was intrigued by the uh, by the telling of her origin story through her amnesia flashbacks. I thought that was that was kind of a neat way to to do it. 
Um, but then the problem is, like Zach said, you drop into into the middle of a story that you know nothing about for 20 minutes and don't care. So, I, I mean, there's got to be some sort of balance there. See, but, okay, um, so what I'm saying is, why couldn't we have had just, like, an extended version of the mid credit scene and then have Endgame be called Captain Marvel? Because it's going to be her movie. I mean, it's, it's not like we care that it's called The Avengers, because Captain America Civil War was an Avengers movie. It just was called Captain America for some reason, even though he wasn't even the main guy in the movie. Like, that, we could have just called Captain Marvel the next movie, and she would have been introduced, and we would have cared more because it was actually her in her element doing what we know that she's eventually going to do, and that's kill Thanos. The reason they're not doing that is because, as it is, Endgame is already a three-hour movie. It did, we don't even need her origin story. She could just drop in and save the world because that's what we knew was going to happen anyway. Like, but why do we getting... need this whole backstory in a, in a movie that did not do a good job of making us give a shit about her? But, but this is also where Marvel needs to be more inclusive. Like, we have Wonder Woman, we have Black Panther. Where is the Marvel, you know, female superhero movie? This is it. And, okay, yeah, maybe the results aren't great, but they needed to put something out, I think, to, to you know, ease the flames from the fire. And I think the box office numbers are, are speaking to that, that no matter what kind of movie it, it was going to be, at least it's not Catwoman. Yes. So people are going to go see it. And and they're going to to love and revere it. MCU's putting out like it doesn't matter how bad the movie is, they're still going to go see it. And the and the critics are afraid to say anything bad about it, so they're always going to give it like seventy percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Todd, well, you're it, an internet troll, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> that is how I spend my days. Yes, yes, says the man without a Twitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, that's how you keep it secret, though. You know, you fool people. You don't tell them. It's, exactly. It's a real troll. Yeah. Well, uh, we are all across the board on this one, but um, I think if anything, uh, like Todd said, it uh, it definitely is getting uh, is building up the suspense for uh, Avengers Endgame, which comes out in just a little over a month, which is kind of crazy that it's coming so quickly following. Uh, following Captain Marvel, but uh, Zach gives it three stars. I give it two and a half stars. Todd gives it one and a half stars. Um, so uh, we're, like I said, we're all over the board, but um, if you've been listening, you kind of start to realize which one you uh, you identify with the most, and uh, you can help uh, determine what your opinion will be from that. Okay, I'm really curious. So you said, you said Thor was your worst MCU movie, and this was third to worst. What was second to worst? Uh, Age of Ultron, because honestly, oh. I cannot tell you one thing about that movie. <laughs> I do not remember anything <laughs> about that movie. Other than that, I, g- yeah. I think I gave it two stars or something. Or you don't remember Quicksilver? No. I, mean, I remember him more in X-Men. Well, yeah, that's because X-Men did it ten times better. And then didn't kill him off before he even got a chance to be a character. Spoiler alert. They, they wasted Aaron Taylor Johnson in that. Anyways, alright. Golden Moving Globe on. winner Aaron Taylor Johnson. Golden Globe <laughs> winner Aaron Taylor Johnson that got half of part of a MCU movie and is done. <sighs> I, I, I thought he was a much more interesting character than Scarlet Witch. Anyway, whatever. Well, now they're kicking okay. Scarlet Witch out because they have the better version of her in Captain Marvel. Which I actually but, like Scarlet Witch a lot, <laughs> but whatever. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's move on into our spotlight segment, because if 
we weren't sick of the MCU yet. We're going to keep talking about it for a little while longer. Uh, because for our spotlight segment this time, uh, in celebration of Captain Marvel, and looking ahead to Avengers Endgame, which is going to kind of tie a bow on this these first 10 or 11 years of the MCU, uh, we're going to look at uh, the Mount Rushmore of MCU performances. So this is this is uh, performances, character performances. This doesn't have to be tied to one specific movie. It can be over over a course the course of the whole MCU. But um, Mount Rushmore, who are the most uh, like the most iconic, greatest uh, performances uh, from this franchise to date. Uh, so what the way we do this is we each put forth one nominee that is a non-negotiable. Uh, and then we will debate for who gets who gets the uh, the Teddy Roosevelt spot as the fourth uh, fourth member of the group. Zach, I'm going to go to you first. Uh, who is your submission to Mount Rushmore uh, in MCU performances? All right. Well, it's not going to be an Avenger because, frankly, uh, a lot of the MCU movies to me are indistinguishable. Like we were just talking about with Age of Ultron, um, I sort of feel that that way about the main performances as well. I can't really distinguish one movie from the other. So, really, the performances that have always stuck out to me are the MCU villains, and the best MCU villain, in my opinion, the one that really just leapt off the screen and pretty much actually outacted everyone else in the movie, and so much to the extent that it actually made me made made me want the movie to be about his character was none other than Michael B. Jordan as Killmonger in Black Panther. Must feel good. It's about two billion people all over the world that looks like us, but their lives are a lot harder. Wakanda has the tools to liberate them all. And what tools are those? Vibranium. I mean, this guy has a great backstory, okay, between his time uh, being a, a, an exile from Wakanda um, and his relationship to Chishala. But the performance by Michael B. Jordan is just awesome. You know, we see someone who's very, like, tortured and uh, just split between uh, his duties and obligations. And uh, he looks great in the role, obviously. His his suit is amazing. And every every time he's in the movie, he just, he shines. It's like, you know, Todd has commented that uh, he's not the world's biggest fan of Chadwick Boseman. I agree. There's maybe a little bit more left to be desired there in terms of his performance. And every time Michael B. Jordan was on screen, uh, it was... Uh, uh, amazing the movie should have been called Killmonger. They did such a great job with Killmonger that by the end of it, his character was so well done and so well developed that you kind of wanted to root for Killmonger and not Black Panther at the end. There's a case to be made. For that. <laughs> Absolutely. <clears throat> like, like it, you're you're rooting. You're kind of wanting to the root for him until you realize that he's you know going a little off the deep end but yeah yeah i i i fully agree with uh with that submission that's a good one and uh and definitely one of if not the best villain that they've had uh all right i'm gonna go next uh my submission uh is is going to be an avenger because i think there's uh i i don't think the mcu exists if it isn't for robert downey jr and tony stark you know, you may not be a threat, but you better stop pretending to be a hero. A hero? Like you? You're a laboratory experiment, Rogers. Everything special about you came out of a bottle. Uh, this whole thing started off with Iron Man, and 
Iron Man at the time was, I mean, this came out like right around the same time as Dark Knight. And I think it, it, it was a, it could be, there could be an argument that it was one of, if not the greatest superhero movie, um, when it came out. Um, and if it hadn't been for Robert Downey Jr. getting an opportunity to pretty much play himself, but doing it in this amazing over-the-top way as Tony Stark, I don't know if the MCU carries on. I mean, look at look at the DCEU. I mean, you had you had a, one clunker, a couple clunkers of movies, because you had the wrong, uh, you had a couple miscastings in those first movie or two, and now it's dying off. Uh, and instead, you get Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark that catapults it to this new level, and every time he pops back up, it keeps it there. And uh, I, I, yeah, like I said, the MCU would not be what it is today if it wasn't for Robert Downey Jr. He has to be on the Mount Rushmore of MCU performances. And to and also, I would say, the first Iron Man, the very first MCU movie, it's still probably in my top two or three of all the MCU movies. So. Tony Stark, Robert Downey Jr., he's up there. I can't entirely disagree with you, Terry. However, the only reason why I would be a little more reluctant to put him that high that fast is it's not that hard when you have the best lines in the movie. That's true. That's true. And it, and again, it's not that hard when you're basically playing yourself. However, I it, it still it still makes the whole thing or, work. Well, maybe not himself, but the but the type that he has personified in movies for the last 30 years. Right, right. All right, Todd, who is your submission? All right, well, I guess uh, I'm going a little off the board if you guys are going with them. I'm going with uh, Haley Atwell in Captain America, the first Avenger. And Ooh, good one. Uh, Did you have something against running away? You start running, they'll never let you stop. You stand up, you push back. You can't say no forever, right? I know a little of what that's like, to have every door shut in your face. It's the only character in the MCU that actually got their own spin-off. So I think that pretty much qualifies her as being one of the elite. Uh, her character of Agent Carter was so interesting. She really just kind of blew everyone else off the screen. There was a really impressive cast. Uh, and it's in one of the elite couple movies in the in the entire series. And I never watched the show because I didn't really want to get roped into watching like every stupid superhero show that they vomit out these days. But this is the only one that I actually really considered watching. But Agent Carter was always one of the best parts of First Avenger, and that's my second favorite MCU movie. And yeah, I think she definitely gave one of the best performances, like true acting performances in the entire series. With everything that's been coming out with Captain Marvel being released, I saw something, and I really agree with it, that said that Agent Carter is probably the best written female character of the MCU so far. And even now that Captain Marvel's out, you can say that that still holds. So not only was it was it well acted, but it was the most rounded, well rounded, uh, well written uh, female character of the entire MCU. I would agree. So so yeah, you're right. It's a little it's a little off off the board, but definitely a, a worthy submission. All right, so we have we have Killmonger, we have Iron Man. We have Agent Carter. We have room for one more. Where do you guys want to go? I've got a, I've got a few ideas, but where? What are you thinking? Yeah, I have a few that I wrote down. Also, I I think Josh Brolin definitely has to be considered, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, Sebastian Stan. I always lo I love the Winter Soldier, and uh, I also uh, Chris Pratt. Be hard to beat. 
and on Adam Daily Live, I actually gave him the idea in his top five uh, Marvel characters to say uh, Stan Lee in Iron Man playing uh, Hugh Hefner, which <laughs> I think that could have to be one of our choices. <laughs> That's a great one. That's a great one. Uh, so the the few I wrote down, I I'm a huge Captain America fan. So Chris Evans is Captain America. I've got to I've got to throw him out there. Um, Loki, I I I love watching Loki, and whenever he's on screen, I think it I think the the scene gets more interesting. And another one of those guys that just kind of ties everything together, Agent Coulson. His first name is Agent. I I think I, I, he's. He's such a cool character for and and could have easily been this forgettable guy, yet he's a uh, he makes so many scenes better. So th- those are a few that I I'd thought of. Um, Zach, do you have any others? Yeah, I was gonna say uh, Paul Bettany as Jarvis for sure. Um, as Jarvis, I hate Vision. Vision yeah, is not is Vision. terrible, but Jarvis, Jarvis. sure. Yes. <laughs> Um, my second favorite villain in an MCU movie was Kate Blanchett as Hela in uh, Thor Ragnarok. Um, so I would selfishly submit her. And then um, I guess I would also maybe think about Anthony Mackie. I think he's he's pretty good as Falcon. But um, I don't know. I, I think your yours are equally as convincing. I also I like, would also, I also say, love Edward Norton as as Bruce Banner. I I really think that he's a better Bruce Banner than Mark Ruffalo. Oh no no argument about that at all. And, and in a similar comment, I'm gonna say that uh, that I would go with uh, Terrence Howard as Captain Rhodes over Don Cheadle's Captain yeah. Rhodes. Yeah yeah yeah. One character um, that also stood out to me was uh, Tilda Swinton's character in Doctor Strange. I, I really liked that movie probably more than anybody else but yeah I, that was another one that I think that she actually did a really really good performance in that so one uh, Todd you mentioned Chris Pratt as, uh, as Star-Lord I'm not a huge fan of Star-Lord it, it, I, I think it's just a little I, I don't know when I, by the time I saw I didn't see Guardians of the Galaxy in theaters I saw it once it was out and by the time I got around to it I was just I felt like I was kind of on Chris Pratt playing Chris Pratt overload because he was in like everything at that point that I, uh, I, I don't know. I, my, I like, uh, I'll take the rocket, uh, over, uh, over, um, over star Lord. Nice. Nice. Reference <laughs> You're welcome. Todd. You go with Groot, you know, is is Groot uh, Vin Diesel's best acting performance? Well, no, but in the top <laughs> five for sure. I like the idea of going with with uh, Stan Lee as Hugh Hefner. That's that's the best I've heard so far. It, it's a it's a good well, and and I mean Stan Lee every time he pops up, it it that that's one of the things that I think got Captain Marvel off to a great start is the tribute they did. Uh, in the opening credits, yeah, that, that was, was that was pretty good. So let's put Stan Lee on on our Mount Rushmore. Stan Lee, that seems fitting. I think it does. I think it does. So uh, so we have we have Killmonger. So we have we have our best villain. We have our best Avenger. We have our best female, and we have uh, the one that created it all. 
I, I like think it. that's a solid Mount Rushmore. Didn't he play like a FedEx driver at one point in one of them? I forget which one it was. Are you Tony Stank? Yes, this is this is Tony Stank. You're in the right place. Thank you for that. I don't know. Or UPS driver. I don't know. He was delivering a package in one of these movies. I think it might have been Iron Man too. I'm I'm not sure. I would I would pay to see a movie with those four. Tony Stark fighting Killmonger with Agent, Agent Carter. Carter. And, uh... At Hugh Hefner's place. At, at the Playboy Mansion. <laughs> and then he comes in on a UPS truck and delivers some packages. The, the, other, the other random uh, cameo of his that I always liked was uh, he's the one that ends up drinking uh, the, the soda with Hulk's blood in it. Like, like, can you imagine Stan Lee hulked out? That, that'd be... <laughs> we'll have to see if any, any Stan Lee performances show up on our power rankings. Oh, oh yes. Nicely done. Well, uh, well, with that little segue that Todd just gave us, let's hop into those power rankings. Okay. Uh, so, Todd won our last power rankings. It's been a while because... Our last episode was our almost famous episode. I always almost say almost sideways when I say that. Um, and then the one before that was our Oscar preview. So it's been, oh, a good month and a half or so since we've done a power rankings. But Todd was the one that won. Uh, Todd, do you have our, uh, do you have our, uh, our rating or our scores? That's the word I was looking for. Yes. Uh, Cheers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am still leading 11 and a half. Uh, uh, and then Zach has seven and a half, and Terry has five. All right, so, Todd, you won. Tell us what we're doing. All right, so I decided to go with uh, a little sort of, I, li I like a little, think a little abstract, so uh, I went with performances by people that are no longer alive from the 2000s. Because, like, you have those times when you're always like, man, that was a great performance, I can't wait to see what they do again. But I'm a little darker in my personality so i'm like these are performances it's like wow i can't wait i can't see that person anymore so these are performances uh the best performances from the 2000s of the deceased of the deceased okay this is i i i'll admit this was um this was definitely a list that was possibly the most depressing list to put together because each time you, you found one that you're like, oh. Because just like you said, these are all people that we're not going to see act anymore, and that, that makes me sad. Yeah, so, so I'm going to go first. Like a, a, either it's, we're looking at people that were near the end of their long career uh, performances, or just actors who died too young. And so it gives you, uh, a, it puts you in a perspective of looking at these, these performances uh when you might not normally have actually put brought them up in normal conversation about best performances. So question, is Gene Hackman really dead? And we just don't know it. It's possible. <laughs> I mean, when was the last, last time we saw him? Mooseport. Welcome to Mooseport. Classic. Actually, like two years ago, I watched a documentary that he narrated that was a brand new documentary. So... Well, Sean, or was it? Sean Connery hasn't been around either since *The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen*. I can't remember the last time I actually That's saw him do too. anything. That's true too. 
I remember I saw pictures of him like five years ago ringing in the New York Stock Exchange, and he looked <laughs> weird. He didn't look anything like like him. Anyways, all right, let's get into this. I'm gonna get started. Uh, so, like I said, this was kind of a depressing list to make, but it was also it was also really interesting. So what I did, I went through. Um, I mean, th this isn't really a list that you can find that that can help you cheat at all. But what I started doing is I went through lists of notable actors that have died over the last 19 years or so and picked out ones that I thought might have some interesting performances to look at and started with that and went from there. Um, so I ended up uh, with a with a pretty solid top five. Um, so I'm going to go, my number five, some of these were ones that... Um, I knew I had to have represented on my list, and this one is definitely one of those. Because you can only Possibly, choose one per actor. I forgot to specify that. Right. Yeah, that was what made this difficult, because my, my number five is where I'm going to get in my Philip Seymour Hoffman performance, because really this could have just been an, an entire list of Philip Seymour Hoffman right. in that way. Um and there were there were some obvious choices to go with, but I went with possibly my my guilty pleasure favorite um, off the rail Philip Seymour Hoffman performance, and that is his role as Gust Avrakotos in Charlie Wilson's War. Yeah, the Afghans keep walking into machine gun fire till the Russians run out of bullets. That's Harold Holt's strategy. It's not U.S. strategy. What is U.S. strategy? No, strictly speaking, we don't have one, but we're working hard on that. Who's we? Me and three other guys. The CIA operative that uh that is just you know his his emotions are right there and he just kind of freaks out all the time and about how things don't go his way sometimes and he's just this hot-headed guy that helps uh that helps tom hanks and charlie as charlie wilson uh figure out all this stuff of of kind of starting this war in the middle east to help america's interests um it's such a random little little character that uh and uh the fact that it wasn't even that big of a part, yet he got an Oscar nomination for it shows just how great he was in everything. And I, I mean, I could have gone, I guess I could have gone with Lester Bangs. I didn't even realize, think about that because it's right on the border there. But um, I could have gone with Dowd. I could have gone with Capote. I'm going with Charlie Wilson's War because it, it, Gust is the man. And I, I that performance makes me laugh almost more than anything Philip Seymour Hoffman has ever done. All right. He has that great line where he's like, you're telling me that I spent, you know, 10 years learning Finnish for nothing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it, it's, yeah, it, it's a great line. I wasn't even going to try to say it because I was going to mess it up, but yeah, it, it's, it's awesome. All right, Todd, number five. All right, so I went with a movie that I feel like we were mentioning a lot on these podcasts now, and I'm not really sure why, other than that Terry really didn't like it, and that's uh, Brad Renfro's performance in Bully. You're Marty, right? Yeah. And I watch you surf North Beach. No shit? I like to rollerblade down there a lot. Look like you're gonna go work out from rollerblade. I knew you were gonna have that on your list. Uh, that was like the one guaranteed Todd is going to have this on his list. Well, you're welcome. Uh, I love the movie, and I think Renfro was a fascinating actor. He he died at 25 of an overdose, and but this was clearly his best performance that he ever gave. He plays the, the main character who plots with his girlfriend to kill his bullying best friend, and he just has so much pain in his face 
throughout the movie, and you really believe him and feel for him, even though he's doing un- unthinkable things. Uh, he was uh, just electric to watch, and these types of roles really showed how much talent he had, and I don't really know a whole lot of actors that could have done it. It would have been like a, a River Phoenix-type performance if he was still around. I don't know. I feel like that's always a trend where like the, these actors that are really good character actors, all the ones that end up dying too early, but... Brad Redfro and Bully had to be represented on this list because he he was really good and really underrated. I feel I, like I, I, admi- I admire the actor. That was a terrible performance. You should get a point for predicting that, Terry. Yeah, you called it. <laughs> he needs he I, needs yeah. the points. <laughs> I, I don't think I totally we've ever do. scored power rankings before, but maybe, maybe we should start <laughs> doing that. Change things up a little bit. Uh, all right, Zach, number five. All right, well, my number five is also uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I guess, you know, we have our obligatory Philip Seymour Hoffman tributes, so I'm just going to get out of the way. Like Terry said, it's impossible. I mean, you you know, Schenectady, New York, uh, Love Liza, Owning Mahoney, 25th Hour, Almost Famous. You know, name name your choice. Actually, originally what I was going to go with was A Most Wanted Man, one of his last roles. But I decided to kind of go the same route that Terry did. We got to go to the most... Philip Seymour Hoffman-iest role that he had in this millennia. And that, to me, is his role as Dean Trumbull in Punch Drunk Love. Yeah. What's your name, sir? You're sick. No, no, no. Shut up! Shut up! Shut, 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 shut up! Are you threatening me? Yes. That wasn't good! You're dead! He's only in the movie for, (laughs) I would guess, maybe five minutes, maybe six minutes. He's only in, like, one or two scenes, but he is so awesome. And there's no other actor who could play, you know, this scumbag uh, mattress salesman from Utah who also runs a phone sex ring. And, uh, you know, his conversation on the phone with Adam Sandler, which is a little too profane for this podcast, really just consists of him yelling, Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! And no one could do it quite like Philip Seymour Hoffman could. If you watch um, the special features on the Punch Drunk Love uh, DVD, by the way, there's a great uh, commercial that they made for D&D Mattress Man, where Philip Seymour Hoffman is playing a guitar and actually falls off the roof and injures himself. And it looks totally authentic. So that is a total testament to the man's work ethic and uh, diligence and dedication to to the role. So uh, number five, Philip Seymour Hoffman, greatest actor maybe of our lifetime. An- another very predictable performance to have on a list. Like, as soon as you started talking of Philip Seymour Hoffman, I'm like, he's going to go with Punk Struck Love. I was afraid That's... you were going to go with it. It's such a great role. <laughs> uh, so so before we move on from uh, from Phil Hoffman, I have the quote that, that you were talking about, and I, I, I've got I've to say it now because it's just too good. So uh, so he's finding out that he's he's not going to be getting the job he wants as the uh, as the station chief in Helsinki, Finland. And uh, and he says, promises were made. I've been with the company for 24 years. I was posted in Greece for 15. I've advised and armed the Hellenic army. I've neutralized champions of communism. I've spent the past three years learning Finnish, which would come in handy here in Virginia. And I'm never again, and I'm never ever sick at sea. So I don't know why I'm not your Helsinki station chief. And then he throws the chair through the boss's win, uh, office window. Yeah, and you and can tell that you've seen this movie a lot, Terry, because you get the intonation exactly right. Like the way oh, yeah. he says, finish! <laughs> yeah, that's a great imitation. It's also going to be the most uh, forgotten, like, Aaron Sorkin script and Mike Nichols movie, right? It, it has to be. And that, and it was completely ignored at the Oscars, except for 
Philip Seymour Hoffman getting that nomination. You uh, know, if Philip Seymour Hoffman was alive today, he'd be in the MCU. I mean, yeah, and, and well, he he was never afraid to do stuff like that. I mean, he was in well, he was in the Hunger Games. He was in Hunger Games. He was in a Mission Impossible. Still, ah, probably the best villain in a Mission Impossible. I'm just saying, you know. I mean, you know, he shouldn't have died, but like, I can I I can live without him in the MCU. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on. Uh, my number four is another one that. Um, We've kind of gotten these out, these out of the way at the beginning here of ones that we are only going to be the ones that have it on our list. I'm the only one that's going to mention Charlie Wilson's War. Todd is the only one that's going to mention Bully. Zach is the only one that's <laughs> yes. going to mention Punch Drunk Love. So I'm going to be the only one that mentions Richard Harris in The Count of Monte Cristo. I offer knowledge. Everything I have learned. I will teach you... Economics, mathematics, philosophy, science. To read and write? Of course. Uh, <laughs> wow. Because that is one of my all-time favorite movies, and it is one of the, the craziest uh, roles of just this whimsical old man. Like, I knew, I knew Richard Harris as Abe Faria in Count of Monte Cristo before I realized he was Dumbledore, before I realized, you know, that he, you know acted before the age of 80 um and i thought it was just this amazing performance of this super cool whimsical old man that teaches edmund dantes um about everything about uh about education and and teaches him languages and teaches him economics and all these different things helps him figure out who he should be angry at when he gets out and also helps him escape uh he is he is like the best part of that movie and that is one of my all-time favorite movies that nobody else cares about and so i had to mention it richard harris in the count of monte cristo is my number four i have to say i didn't even realize that richard harris was alive in the 2000s <laughs> dude he did two he did two harry potter movies he's in the gladiator right and he was in gladiator yeah <laughs> Uh, all right, Todd, number four. Okay, my number four. I went with the Philip Seymour Hoffman movie at four, which, which I went with the more traditional choice than you guys did. Uh, the only other one I really had considered was The Master, and neither of you even mentioned that in the, when you rattled off like the 15 movies. <laughs> but uh, but I, I went because I still haven't seen The Master. Uh, really? That's, yeah. That's, wow. that's one of the best acted movies uh, of the 2000s. Absolutely. It's a glaring omission, I realize. I think Terry just secretly hates Paul Thomas Anderson. But, okay. My, I don't uh, hate Paul Thomas Anderson. My number four is, I went with Capote, his Oscar-winning role. <laughs> I was writing the script as they were filming all that time in Italy, and I, I worked like mad all day long and then dashed down to the bar around midnight to end in the next day's scenes. Uh, I think it's the most iconic of all his all-time worthy performances which he has several and uh i don't know I, I, yeah like i could have chosen a lot of them but i'd be lying if i didn't say that this was his best one it's the complete true embodiment of truman capote so much that like he takes this like standard biopic and makes it somehow one of the most powerful movies of the last 20 years and whenever i see clips of capote i just like shake my head in amazement because it's hard because he never really did that kind of thing that kind of role before that and he just 
well, like really one of his first main characters, and he just was iconic and all time worthy. So, yeah. Truman Capote, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, is my number four. Yeah, and what was so amazing about him is that you know he could do something like you know, Punch Drunk Love, where he's in the movie for five minutes, essentially playing, you would think, you know, close to his own personality to some degree, unshaven, kind of reckless. Or he could get in a costume and makeup, put, do the accent, and just nail uh, Truman Capote better than any actor, you know? Uh, he was so versatile, and it's just, it's rare to see that kind of versatility. And I don't hate... Paul Thomas Anderson. However, I might be the only one on this podcast that would say the best PTA movie is Magnolia. Oh, you would not be the only one on this podcast. Okay, well that's good. Maybe. I don't know. What? I What? <laughs> when did you say Punch <laughs> Drunk Love? <laughs> well, yeah. Okay, we're going down a rabbit hole. I think we We are. I think this this could be an entire episode in the future about Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> I'm going right. to go to my Zach. number three, which, or excuse me, my number, number four. four, excuse me, which is uh, an actor who actually just died within the last month, and that actor was the great German actor Bruno Gantz, and his performance in Downfall as Adolf Hitler mm, is one of the one. best performances of the decade. <laughs> Um, Downfall is a movie, it's, it's not really a standard biopic of Hitler, it's uh, more focusing on his last weeks when he's inside uh, his bunker, really the whole movie takes place kind of underground, and um, it's told through the point of view of one of his secretaries, but, uh, so he, it's not really even about him so much, but every time he's on screen, he just completely obliterates uh, everyone else, actually in a way it's a little bit like Killmonger, I guess, he just destroys, um, d destroys everything else, it, I can't imagine trying to act uh, beside that. Um, but uh, he's playing probably the most challenging real-life person to ever portray in a movie, and he does it so well that he has eventually turned into a meme, and that's the only way that this movie is really remembered today on the internet, uh, is his breakdowns as Hitler and his over-the-top acting, but it's phenomenal acting, and there's only one other actor who could have possibly pulled off what he did in Downfall, and that, that's Klaus Kinski. Um, but uh, he was great in that movie. It's one of the iconic performances of the, of the 2000s, and it's a really good movie. So R.I.P. Bruno Gantz, recent death, uh, great, great actor. Love it. I'm really glad that you didn't say that the other actor that could have done it was Peter Simonashek. Oh, now you've got, <laughs> you know, I would never thought about that before. The wheels are spinning. <clears throat> All right, well, let's move on. My number three now. I'm hoping I'm not the only one that mentions this. Todd will probably have this on his list somewhere as well. <clears throat> Number three on my list is David Carradine in Kill Bill. Well, a moment ago I was playing my flute. This moment, I'm looking at the most beautiful Brian these old eyes have ever seen. Uh, as the titular role of Bill, uh, this, uh, this master of this assassin squad, uh, that is being hunted by one of his assassins, uh, he gives just this incredible performance, main, pretty much entirely in volume two, he barely pops up at all in volume one, um, but it, it's, it's just an amazing performance, it, he, he steals every scene that he's in, which is a, 
impressive considering the tour de force that Uma Thurman is in the in that movie. Um, he he gives one of the most iconic performances of the last twenty years, and also has one of the more uh, mysterious and uh, and sketchy death stories of the last twenty years for celebrities as well. So. Um, David we'll just, Carradine. We'll just leave it at that. We'll just leave it at that. Um, but David Carradine, uh, as as Bill, is my number three. Yeah, it's hard to argue with that one. He's the man. <laughs> He's the man. <laughs> All, right. All right, Todd, number three. Okay, my number three. I went with uh, a performance by an actress. I was always sort of a a decent fan of and she died of drugs and pneumonia uh that's Brittany murphy in uh the dead girl baby can you just tell me you love me i really need to hear it i gotta go back to bed but um i gotta go i gotta go Uh, she plays the title character. It's like an anthology type movie where we see how five chapters of how a death impacts four different women and then eventually the dead girl and how she actually ended up dying. Uh, it, it was uh, directed by Karen Moncrief, who I always thought what, it was an underrated director. I, I always like championed basically all of her movies. and uh, But in this movie... Brittany Murphy plays a prostitute, and she's, like, trying to get her life under control, and so she could take care of her daughter, and she's just hypnotic and devastating to watch, and uh, she's clearly the least distinguished actor in the movie, but she definitely is the one that walks off the movie and leaves an impression that just burns in the memory, so Brittany Murphy in The Dead Girl is my sort of oddball pick, but one that I always really loved. I knew she was gonna pop up somewhere on one of, on one of your lists. Not, not uptown girls. Oh, no, too bad. No, yeah. All right, Zach, number three. All right, number three is a movie that um, Todd actually turned me on to, and I'm sorry if I'm stealing it off off maybe your future pick, Todd. And that is Robin Williams in Boulevard. Then we went across the street to that little place. What was it? Paradise Cafe. Yeah, the Paradise Cafe. Are you? In your exquisite way, you explained the entire movie to me, scene by scene. I'm sure the rest of the people in the cafe love that, but it's kind of wonderful. This was one of Robin Williams' last movies before his death, and, uh, you know, I always thought he was really underrated as an actor. I think part of the problem with him was that he sometimes got material that um, just fit in too much to his off-screen persona, and Boulevard is a performance that could not be a, f a further departure from who he was in real life. Um, this is a very subtle, very understated performance. There's absolutely nothing flashy about it. Um, and he plays in this movie a, uh, a bank teller who's up for promotion, and he's married, uh, but he's hiding this uh, secret that uh, he's gay. And he actually meets a teenage hustler early in the movie, and, so and they sort of develop a, a, a friendship and relationship relationship um, that threatens both his marriage and his job. And, uh, you know, the, the, the mannerisms in this movie are, are, that he has in his face are just remarkable. It's really subtle, you know, and he's a, it's a very, he's a very quiet, introverted character, and that's really important to understand the, uh, the emotional volatility of the character. 
Um, Robin Williams also was great in Insomnia and uh, uh, One Hour Photo. So those are two movies I had thought about putting on the list. But this one was really – and, and those two movies, to, to be fair, are also kind of uh, movies and roles that you wouldn't expect him in. But um, this one is much less flashy than the other two, and uh, he's in every scene in the movie, and you really have to um, – believe the character to, to buy uh, the movie at all and uh, he's great in it so uh, thank you Todd for turning me on to that movie it's an awesome movie if you haven't checked it out Boulevard starring Robin Williams yeah that just missed my list but yeah he's my best actor winner for 2015 like yeah I think that's the best work he's done since Good Will Hunting so yeah Robin Williams he, he was just off my list but the role I had him for was World's Greatest Dad oh good one Speaking which is another really good one shocking David Carradine type deaths. Mm. <laughs> yes. Okay, moving on. <laughs> we don't need to dwell too there much on that. There are children listening, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Number two on my list uh, is uh, one that kind of became a very beloved actor, and uh, and it was kind of shocking when he died because he had really kept his illness pretty uh, pretty quiet. And that is Alan Rickman, and the the role I'm I'm uh, putting him up for is his role as Severus Snape in the Harry Potter franchise. You were seen by no less than seven Muggles. Do you have any idea how serious this is? You have risked the exposure of our world. Uh, for someone who you know gained notoriety for being one of the greatest villains of all time as Hans Gruber in Die Hard, uh, to find something that is even more iconic uh, later on in his career is impressive. And uh, of the entire... Say what you want about Harry Potter, whether you're a fan of it or not, uh, Severus Snape is the most fascinating character and the most well-rounded character of anybody in that, in that universe. Uh, because you never quite know what's going on, and he plays it to perfection. Uh, I, I can't. I think high, one of the highest war performances of of the last twenty years is him in this role. I can't see anybody else portraying it uh, as well as he has. I've read the books, and he's the only person that even comes to mind as a possibility. What about Jeremy uh, with, Irons? No, 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 not not quite as, like he as does. His, as his as his brother. <laughs> Jer yeah. Jeremy Irons isn't Snape's brother. What? It's Hans I, Gruber's he, brother too. Yeah. Come on. Oh, Hans Gruber's Get brother. I program. see what you're going with. I see where you're going. Okay. Anyways, um, his his performance as Snape is amazing, and it's one of the reasons I love Harry Potter is how incredible that character is, and how incredible Alan Rickman is in it. So it is my number two. All right. Todd disagrees. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I would not have even considered that performance, but okay. That's because you don't even consider Harry Potter. True. But anyways, moving on. All right, my number two uh, is uh, what I think is the greatest voice acting in movie history, and that's James Gandolfini in Where the Wild Things Are. Oh, come on. That can't happen. I mean, you're the king. And look at me. I'm big. How could guys like us worry about a tiny little thing like the sun? 
he plays uh, the main thing called uh, named Carol, and he just like breaks your heart with his like miserable outlook. He's somehow like engaging and frightening at the same time, and I I can only imagine how good it would have been if they actually used motion capture in that because I imagine that it, like that character would have been even more emotive, and uh, it's m my favorite story as a as uh, from my childhood, and I can't even like think about it without hearing his voice attached to it now. It's a, just a gem of a performance and the only time I've ever considered voice acting for my own personal awards. He's he's just that good. The James Gandolfini in Where the Wild Things Are. Number two. Zach, number two. Yeah, and uh, I think we're keeping this mostly uh, movies, but uh, if we did open it up to TV, then James Gandolfini and The Sopranos would have to be number one. Oh, yeah. But number one, not just on actors who have died, but probably performances in the history of TV. Um, I was thinking about James Gandolfini. I, I think he's... I, I, I'm not as big a fan of Where the Wild Things Are as you are. Uh, both are. But uh, I really liked him in Enough Said. Um, he was really good in that movie. But I had him up I had him up for the drop. Yeah, he's pretty good in that movie, too. Um, my number two is uh, another foreign language movie. Um, it is uh, the actor Ulrich Mare in The Lives of Others, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. 2980. Geschenkverpackung? Nein, es ist für mich. And he plays uh, Lieutenant Wiesler, uh, Gerd Wiesler, who's with the uh, East German secret police, the Stasi unit. And uh, it's a performance that I guess a little bit like Robin Williams, it's a really kind of subtle and understated performance. He doesn't have flashes where he screams at the heavens or breaks out in a mon Shakespearean monologue or anything like that. Um, he doesn't actually say a whole lot in the movie, but it's really, it's a, it's a challenging role because over the course of the movie, he goes essentially through, through a philosophical uh, and moral shift uh, in his beliefs. And these aren't always emoted or conveyed in dialogue because if he were to say it out loud, then his life would be in jeopardy um, and his career would ultimately end in a downfall, which it sort of does, spoiler alert. Uh, so you really have to, you know, try to um, interpret based on, you know, subtle facial expressions and body movements, you know, how he's shifting as a character. And it's a great performance. And Ulrich Murphy was uh, apparently um, someone who lived in uh, East Berlin for, for a while in the 1980s, and his identity and his allegiances got compromised in much a similar way that the uh, character of... Uh, of uh, Georg Dreibmann happens to him in the movie too so uh, it's a great performance and definitely not a performance that could have been played by Peter Simonoshek Terry sorry to say <laughs> it would have been an interesting interpretation but I'm guessing the wig would have thrown some people off because he can't act without that wig no not at all and the fake teeth uh, I will say Ulrich uh, Buhe was one that I had forgotten about and now that I now that you've reminded me of him, he probably would have been on my list, and uh, but yeah, I just I, it was one I missed. Well, shame because, on you. Well, I mean, he's not necessarily what you would consider a uh, a a high profile uh, celebrity that uh, passed away in that time. So when I looked at my lists, he was not on it. <laughs> That's true. I think he was better than Richard Harris, but maybe I'm biased. Yeah, I, I, that he probably would have taken that spot. Okay, 
Number one on my list, I think this list is kind of built for for an actor like this, and that is Heath Ledger. Um, and I was trying to go away from from the obvious. However, I'm I'm gonna kind of make this a tie in two different performances because they are two polar opposite performances and shows just how great of an actor he was and just how much we missed his craft over the last 10 or 11 years. And that's The Dark Knight and Brokeback Mountain. Look, listen, I know why you choose to have your little <clears throat> group therapy sessions in broad daylight. I know why you're afraid to go out at night. The Batman. Uh, the Dark Knight is is what he won his Oscar for posthumously. It's what a lot of people say killed him, um, but he is he is so menacing and so insane in that movie. Um, I still watch that movie and have trouble seeing him. He disappear. He we always say they disappear into a role. He literally disappears into this role. He is unrecognizable throughout the entire film in in his, the way his face looks the way his voice sounds uh i it is insane how how good he was in that movie um and for as over the top as that is brokeback mountain is that subdued and reserved as he plays ennis del mar um it is one of the most understated amazing performances of the last 20 years he was outstanding i mean there he it's it's hard to put into words just how good that performance was in possibly i mean possibly the best year for best actor that i can remember in 2005 where you had philip seymour hoffman as capote beating heath ledger and joaquin phoenix as johnny cash and david strathairn as edward r murrow and then you also had terrence howard and hustle and flow and that's not even counting russell crowe and cinderella man who didn't even make the list uh that is one of the most stacked categories and the fact that this performance didn't get him an oscar shows just how stacked it was so heath ledger's my number one i'm cheating a little bit here but uh dark knight and brokeback mountain i had to honor both yeah, well, I'll just keep talking, because I had Heath Ledger and Brokeback Mountain as my number one as well. I didn't really didn't think there was another option, because I honestly consider it the best performance anyone's given in the 21st century, dead or alive. Then why don't you... Why don't you just let me be, huh? Because of you, Jack, that I'm like this. Nothing I'm... I'm nowhere. Uh, I think that, I mean, just like the vocal choices that he made, his demeanor, that occasional magnetic smile, like he became this gay ranch hand named Ennis Del Mar, and it, it just continues to devastate me to this day, his performance. I don't know another actor that could have played it who is alive. I was thinking maybe Montgomery Clift could have come close to doing it, but that's the only person I could think of. And... But I don't know, Heath Ledger's death really kind of shook me more than any other celebrity death that I can remember. I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman's was close, but it was kind of overshadowed that day by the fact that we won the Super Bowl. But <laughs> I that, uh, I don't know, it was it was just confusing. I think that we really were like robbed of what could have been one of the best careers in Hollywood history. Because he was only 28 and he was really, as Terry said, coming into his own. And I mean, Monster's Ball and then Brokeback Mountain and The Dark Knight, he was just... He was just the best, and 
but Brooklyn Mountain was like the crowning achievement that he had, I think. Yeah. All right, Zach, number one. Well, I guess I'm I'm sort of torn because I I totally agree. I didn't put Heath Ledger on my top five list, but because I I like Terry predicted Todd would have Brad Renfro. I knew that Heath Ledger would be number one on both of your lists, so I figured why get redundant. I'm I'm gonna go a little bit outside the box for my number one, and I'm also gonna cheat a little bit too, like what Terry did. I'm actually gonna have two actors for my number one. And they starred in the same movie from the early 2000s, and that movie is a French movie called Man on a Train, and the two actors are Jean Rochefort and Johnny Holiday. Two strangers from opposite sides of the track. Until fate brought them together. And to them, in a different direction. Uh, Jean Rochefort was a pretty legendary French actor, um, very dignified, very polished, had won a lot of awards. Johnny Halliday was actually a French rock star. And uh, in this movie, Man on a Train, they play these two very different characters. One is this reserved old gentlemanly uh, retired school teacher. The other one is a petty thief. And they cross paths. And they have the movie's very French. It's very, you know, talkative and they intellectualize the philosophical discourse and things like that. It's a wonderful movie to watch. Great magnetic performances. The reason I'm going to put them on this list, though, is they both died within about six weeks of each other back in 2017, which is kind of amazing because Rochefort was quite a bit older than Johnny Holiday, And um, the fact that they died so close together, and yet really their, their two most notable roles, at least in the United States, were this movie, where really the whole movie is just their banter back and forth, um, is really, I guess, kind of poignant. So I know it's cheating, uh, but it's a really cool movie if you haven't checked it out, Man on a Train. Uh, so my number one is uh, Jean Rochefort and uh, Johnny Halliday. The world is righted again. Zach has a French film number one. All, all is right in the world. It's a great okay. movie. Check it out. And you both cheated on your number one. Just we did. Well, yeah. I, I was, I was gonna just go with one, and I was like, I can't just go with one. It, it, it would be weird. Okay, uh, I've got a couple honorable mentions uh, that I haven't already mentioned, because, uh, like I said, I've got. Well, now I have Oric Muhe for uh, Lives of Others. I've got Robin Williams for World's Greatest Dad. I've got James Gandolfini for The Drop. Uh, there's two others that I have on here. The one that just missed my list was um, I had to mention Anton Yelchin. And uh, my favorite of his is Charlie Bartlett. So that's a, that just missed my list. And then for uh, most of mine were were kind of not older, but my, my uh, one older one... Uh, Charles Durning, the most memorable role I've always thought of from him is him as uh, Papio Daniel in uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? <laughs> it's such a great role, wow. and it, honestly, it was that was the role that introduced me to Charles Durning, so I had to put it on there because I that was... It's what I think <laughs> of when I see him, and when I saw his name on the list, I'm like, oh, I gotta put Oh Brother, Where Art Thou on there, so, so there you go. I mean, uh, I'm, Todd, sure, yeah. I'm sure everyone has their own Charles Durning role, role that they know him in because he was in about 800 movies. I know, I know, yeah, yeah. All right, Todd, what's your honorable mentions? Okay, I have uh, quite a few. I mean, ones that have already been mentioned. David Carradine in Kill Bill Volume 2 and Robin Williams in Boulevard. And then I have uh, some older actors. I had Harry Dean Stanton in Lucky and Burt Reynolds in The Last Movie Star and Rip Torn in an underrated movie called uh, Forty Shades of Blue. 
and then I have some support uh, some character actors like Reggie Kathy was really good in this movie called Nasty Baby from a couple of years ago and then Adrian Shelley who died shortly after the release of the movie that she wrote directed mm. and starting called Waitress and then I also I wanted to mention Vern Troyer I'm gonna say the imaginary of Dr. Parnassus but I mean it could be him playing mini me too so but yeah that's just one that I I kind of had forgotten that he died until I like saw an in memoriam thing I was like oh Okay. All right. Zach, honorable mentions. Yeah, I also had Adrian Shelley for Waitress. She wasn't the central character in the movie, um, but just, you know, for the movie, uh, you know, it deserves recognition, and that was a tragic death. Uh, I also had Brittany Murphy for Uptown Girls, um, not the dead girl, wrong girl. Um, I had uh, Scott Wilson in Junebug. Uh, Bill Paxton, had, no one's mentioned him. Um, yeah. Wasn't in a ton of movies in the 2000s, but uh, his role in Frailty really stood out. And then um, I think I have to go Ryan Dunn for Jackass 3D. Uh, it's a mm. bit of an unconventional pick, but, you know, uh, RIP, Ryan Dunn. And if I'm going to go in that direction, I might as well also say Charlton Heston for Bowling for Columbine. Nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought about Bill Paxton, but most of his, uh, his most notable work was, was, before the, was before 2000. So, Okay, so those are our lists, but now the important part. And that is predicting Adam's list. Um, yes, Adam of uh, Adam Daily Live. He's also an almost sideways contributor. He has sent in his list. We do our best at predicting it. I have done a terrible job at predicting it, but we'll see how this one goes. Uh, so I'm going to go first here. Here's my list. Number five, I have Anton Yelchin for Star Trek. Number four, Robin Williams for World's Greatest Dad. Number three, David Carradine for Kill Bill. Number two, Philip Seymour Hoffman for The Master. Number one, Heath Ledger, Dark Knight. Todd. Okay, well, one that I wanted to put on there, but I wasn't sure that he'd actually seen it, was Paul Walker for Running Scared. Because I think that might be his oh. number one if he's seen it, but I don't know if he actually has. But, That's a good movie. But uh, my number five, I have Albert Finney for Big Fish. For number four, Anton Yelchin for uh, Alpha Dog. Number three, Pete Postlethwaite for The Town. Robin Williams in World's Greatest Dad. And then Heath Ledger for The Dark Knight. Yeah, All right, we, Zach. We have a lot of overlap. This was the first Power Rankings where it was actually easier to write Adams than it was mine. Um, number five, <laughs> I had Anton Yelkin for Alpha Dog. Number four, Robin Williams for World's Greatest Dad. Number three, Philip Seymour Hoffman for Capote. Number two, David Carradine for Kill Bill. And number one, Heath Ledger for The Dark Knight. All right. Well, let's see how we did. We're going to nail these. You can feel it. Honorable mentions. Alan Rickman for Harry Potter. Uh, Carrie Fisher for Star Wars The Last Jedi. And Paul Walker for Fast Five. Oh. Wow. Okay, number five. John Hurt for Snowpiercer or V for Vendetta. See, go figure. We figure we John know him Hurt. so much, and then he I know that. Really? I, I, I know. thought about V for Vendetta. I really did. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about John Hurt, but yeah. Number four, Bill Paxton for Frailty. Wow. Uh, number three, Robin Williams for World's Greatest Dad. Number two, Heath Ledger for The Dark Knight. And number one, Philip Seymour Hoffman for The Master. Wow. Okay, uh, I got three. So I got two. Because I got The Master. Wow. So I think you Because I said Philip Seymour Hoffman, but for Capote. That was a total stab, too. I was like, he's going to have Philip Seymour Hoffman on there. 
but I have a feeling he's going to try to be different and not do Capote. And so I just let's try the master. Let's throw that one in there. And that was it. It was his number one. Hey, it's hey, a, it's a I, great performance. Terry gets his I just won. Victory. I won. Yeah. Catching up. Man, that means I have to pick a category. Oh, uh, maybe this is why I don't win. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I I I uh, get one step closer to being out of the cellar in our uh, in our our competition here. You now are more than halfway to my total. There we go. There we go. I'm getting there. Moving up. All right. Speaking of competitions, it's time for trivia. So before we get into our trivia game, which uh, Zach is leading today, uh, we have some movies that we uh, that we watched. So it's been a little while since we've reported back on our uh, on our movies that we've been forced to watch because of our trivia games, and so we each actually have a movie that we need to talk about here. And we're gonna start with Todd. Todd, I uh, I had you watch a movie. Uh, recently, tell us what it was and what you thought. Okay, uh, Terry had me watch an old Alan Arkin movie called uh, from 1968 called The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. She told about the man who came to live in her family's house. The other people had been ordinary, but Mr. Singer was not. Hi, Mr. Singer. Want to come look at my party? Singer was always talking to Antonopoulos. His hand shaped the words in a swift series of designs. And it's directed by Robert Ellis Miller. Uh, Arkin plays a deaf mute named John Singer, and he seems to be pretty much like the kindest man on earth. Uh, Arkin's always amazing, and what always has made him interesting to me and irresistible is like his voice. And so, like, watching him just signing and making <laughs> facial expressions the whole movie was a little weird. But he totally throws you off, right? Obviously, really good at it. Um, so Singer's best friend is this guy named Spyros, who is also a deaf mute, but he keeps getting in trouble at the lobby because he can't stop stealing like donuts and shit. So he they end up putting him <laughs> in a in a mental institution, and so Arkin, uh, Arkin's character ends up like leaving town uh, to go uh, so he can live closer to the hospital where he stays with his family. Uh, and uh, he bonds with the daughter, played by Sandra Locke, in her uh, Oscar-nominated role as, like, a classic emotional teenager. And I think it was her first performance. It was. Uh, and so, uh, but Singer's gentle persona pretty much wins over everybody in the movie. And uh, the movie is G-rated, but it, it does deal with some pretty heavy topics. The acting's good, but it's more subtle. They don't really make movies quite like this anymore. At least they're not really giving awards attention if they do. Uh, it's not one of my favorite Arkin performances, but he definitely deserved the nomination. And, like, Best Actor was won that year by Cliff Robertson for Charlie, which is a pretty dreadful movie and a pretty bad performance, too. So, I don't know. I don't know why they wouldn't have given it to Arkin. He was just nominated a couple of years before that, too. So, it wasn't like he was a new actor or anything. But, I don't know, it's a sad movie. Uh somewhat inspirational it's got kind of a weepy ending but i think it kind of works I, I give it three stars yeah i gave this one two and a half i watched this uh within the last month month and a half as a part of uh tcm's 31 days of oscar it was on and uh and this was the year after he 
kind of broke out in a in his role in Wait Until Dark with uh, with Audrey Hepburn, which I also watched as part of Thirty One Days of Oscar. But I I, I agree with most of what you said. Um, however, I felt like the ending of that movie is like one of the most abrupt what the hell endings I've ever seen because it comes out of completely nowhere and makes absolutely no sense. I, I just I just thought it, I hated hated that ending. I don't know. I think it makes sense. Pretty much everyone around him was like uh still was treating him so badly and they didn't understand and they never actually looked to him for like the problems that he was going through. But I, I uh because he can't emote because he can't talk. <laughs> I don't know. But I mean he was like this guy that was bringing like the entire community together and and all this stuff. I mean it it, it, it would have been like if, if like, Forrest Gump ends with his suicide. I mean, it just didn't make any sense. <laughs> Spoiler alert, but I don't really care. It's from the 60s. If you wanted to watch it by now, you would have seen it. Yeah, I I, I liked everything about it. It was this great, sweet movie. And then the ending, I'm like, what in the world is going on? Yeah, I hated it. Hated that ending. Okay. That's enough of that. Zach, what did you have to watch? <laughs> well, first, have you have you seen The Heart is a Lonely Hunter? I read the book in high school, believe it or not. Um, okay. Don't remember much of it except that the guy was a deaf mute. Um, I remember liking the book, and I don't know. I feel like between that and Charlie, which is also based on a, a Flowers for Algernon, which is a book a lot of high schoolers read, I feel like 1968 was a good year for uh, high schoolers to go to the movies so they didn't have to read the book. There you go. <laughs> um, All right. What did you have to watch? The movie I had to watch, I don't really remember why, but uh, somewhere down the line, we were, I think it was on our Rotten Tomatoes episode uh, where yes. we were talking about movies that got unfairly criticized by critics. And so Terry brought up Bottle Shock from 2008, which is a movie I'd never even heard of. And in 1976, I just read an article that said California is going to produce wine that will rival the finest of the French. Bonjour. They held the competition to prove it. I'm going to California to try and find some respectable competition. The world tends to think of us as a bunch of hicks <laughs> taking on the French. Did I mention that the tasting was blind? Um, and it tells the story, a true story, about a competition, uh, a, a blind uh, wine tasting competition in 1976 that occurred in France and basically marked uh, the end of the dominance of French wines because in the blind taste test it was a uh, struggling California winery that beat out the revered and esteemed French uh, winery. Um, the movie is, uh, I hate to uh, disagree with Terry and agree with the critics, but I felt like the movie was pretty much of a, a mess. Um, I feel like if, you know, this, this probably was an important event in the history of wine, but it probably should have been more the subject of like a 15 minute short documentary. They tried to extend it out to two hours by adding these ridiculous, uh, excessive characters and storylines and story arcs about fathers and sons and, uh, the, uh, relationships, uh, sexual relationships relationships and then uh, going broke and um, it just was kind of over the top and ridiculous way too many characters um, pretty unfunny pretty dull and you just keep waiting and waiting for the movie to have this taste test that has been promised the whole time in this movie it's like all these other details are pretty unnecessary so that by the time it gets there uh, it's kind of not worth the wait so uh, sorry to say this Terry I, I don't find it charming I don't find it uh, very informative about wine in the way that sideways was I give it one and a half stars
Ooh. But I, I did I, like Chris Pine in his hippie uh, long hair. <laughs> that was that was cool. before any that was before anybody knew who he was. I I, I was I was slightly hoping that uh, that Alan Rickman and Bottle Shock was going to make your uh, your power rankings list this time around, but uh, apparently you know, he, it did not impress. He probably had the best performance in the movie. It's just that the movie it it didn't have enough confidence in that character, so it had about ten other different characters because it felt like it had to be about all these other things leading up to it. If the movie had just been about his character, who by the way his name is Steve Spurrier in the movie, I love that. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, Joe Ball have, Coach. Exactly. It might have made a more interesting movie, but there were a lot, right. of, lot of issues. Well, I appreciated the movie. Todd, you like that one too, don't you? I I don't know. I remember watching it back when like it came out. I really don't remember much about it, though. I think I, I gave it three <sighs> stars, but that's about all I could tell you. Yeah, and to be fair, Ebert gave this movie three and a half stars, so I don't always I, agree with Ebert. I gave it three and a half anyways all right now to the fun one because todd and zach decided i think jointly decided on this one that i had to watch uh 1994's natural born killers what do you have to say to your fans you ain't seen nothing yet natural born killers in the media circus of life they were the main attraction and uh, I just watched this today. And um, going into it, I'll tell you this. Going into it, here's what I knew about the movie. It was written by Tarantino, directed by Oliver Stone, and there was like, like Tarantino like disowned the script or something because of how badly Oliver Stone bastardized it or something. So he actually only has a story credit on it. Am I, am I right, Todd? Am I on the right track here? Yeah, pretty much. That, that's that's around the story. Yeah, yeah. So, um, that's that's all I knew about the movie. That was it. And Woody Harrelson's in it. That that's that's all I knew about it going in. Which is not. This is not the type of movie to go in blind to. <laughs> um, this is the story of uh, of Woody Harrelson and uh, Juliette Lewis who play Mickey and Mallory Knox as they go on this killing spree and they end up killing like 50 people before they're finally caught. Uh, It's kind of crazy, all the different stuff they do, and they're just really killing for fun. It it seems like, the whole movie kind of seems like an acid trip as it cuts between, like, anime and, like, there's stuff playing in the background of every scene, like television, television stuff, and uh, and then we hear we hear their backstory of how they met in like this weird, um, like sitcom thing with Rodney Dangerfield playing Juliet Lewis's father, which is just bizarre. Um, I the the first half of the movie had me completely disinterested, and I I had no idea what was going on. The second half of the movie, I kind of started to really dig a little bit as you as you get to know Tom Sizemore, who's uh, Detective Scagnetti, who is the one that finally finds them and captures them. And you also get to know uh, who I had no idea was in this movie, Robert Downey Jr. as Wayne Gale, who hosts basically like an America's Most Wanted type show uh, called like America's Maniacs. 
and then also you have Tommy Lee Jones as the prison warden who's basically playing uh, Two-Face from Batman Forever. Um, the, these three characters kind of bring the movie back and play over-the-top insane caricatures that, uh, that match the craziness of Mickey and Mallory. Um, overall, this movie is just really out of control and it, it I can tell it it felt like if someone else tried to take Tarantino's material it was weird but that's really what I was seeing and how I and and so knowing that backstory I'm like okay this is someone trying to be Tarantino like literally they took Tarantino's script and tried to be Tarantino but I mean it's like some bizarre like I, I was thinking about this, some bizarre, twisted up version of like Bonnie and Clyde meets From Dusk Till Dawn, meets Kill Bill meets Wild at Heart. Those those four movies are what I saw, and and I I'm gonna give it like a like a hesitant three stars, because there's there's something cool going on there, but also it's messed up, man. So yeah. That's my that's my thoughts of natural born killers. Yeah, it's impressive. <laughs> Does that sound about right? Those four movies kind of all mixed up. I suppose I. I don't know. I I feel like at the time Tarantino was writing a lot of scripts and he never really planned on directing a lot of them. So I don't think that he ever had plans to direct this or True Romance or From Dust Till Dawn. So I don't know. I but I mean I think Oliver Stone's weird style kind of actually fits the, the like bizarre thing i don't know how tarantino could have made this movie any different i it would have been weird to have him make a movie that had some like agenda to talk about like celebrity and like true crime kind of stuff i don't it would have been it would have been strange but i don't know oliver stone he's just way over the top but i, I think it works I, I i love watching this movie yeah, I love this movie too, and one of the things I like about it is that you can appreciate it as both some kind of microcosm of American society in the 1990s, and maybe even as a foretelling of what's happening in today's society, but also it's really just a fun movie to watch. I mean, there's great over-the-top performances, <laughs> and the prison riots are great. Every character, I mean, Robert Downey Jr., you know, no one talks about him in this movie, but his Australian accent, his Robin Leeds <laughs> impersonation are amazing. So you can enjoy it as both, you know, a microcosm of society or whatever Oliver Stone would say about it, but it's also just a really fun movie to watch. And it's the editing is amazing in that movie. Like, the average shot length is, like, two seconds. I mean, it's a remarkable how much... <laughs> they must have shot 10,000 hours of footage for that movie. Yeah. I, I, I like my comparison to Wild at Heart, because it, it kind of felt like that, where there there's this couple going through this, like, journey, but the movie's just messed up in how it's told. And it just is fun in how crazy it is. Fun so, factoid, according to Wikipedia, uh, Adrian Brody plays uh, the cameraman for the Robert Downey Jr. character. Uncredited. Oh, gosh. Nice. That's impressive. All right. Well, anyways, so uh, we're done with that now. So, Zach, you're running our trivia game here. Oh, yes. Tell us, uh, tell us what we're doing here. All right, well, this is going to be a fun fun trivia. So this is an Oscars-related uh, trivia contest. This year, uh, the Best Actor winner for the Oscar was who, Terry? 
Oh, who was it? Rami Malek. All right, you already get a point for that. I'm going to give you a point for that. Why not? Uh, and Todd, uh, who won Best Actress this year? Best Actress was won by Olivia Coleman. Okay, correct. Point for you. That's I, not I the like how game, it's though. the guy... I like how it's a guy drinking water, giving the trivia to the two guys that are drinking the... Well, one of us is drinking 8.7, and Todd is drinking an entire stein. So uh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> well, hey, you both, you're both on the scoreboard, though. That's the important thing. So uh, l- let me ask you this. For, for a point, can you tell me in what ways those roles have, share one common similarity? They're real people. Correct, Todd. Point for Todd. So this list is inspired by the 69 performances of the 2000s that were nominated for either Best Actor or Best Actress that played real people. When you give me your answer, though, it cannot be the actor and it cannot be the film. You have to tell me the name of the person that was played in the movie that got the nomination. For, so, for example, you could ring in and say... Freddie Mercury, but you cannot say Rami Malek for Bohemian Rhapsody. The only way I will accept these answers is if you name the real-life person. So, as I said before, there are 69 performances that were nominated for either Best Actor or Best Actress in, since 2000 that were based on real-life people. And we're just going to go back and forth. You have to tell me the name of the person that was played. And since Todd got the last point, I'm going to start with you, Terry. Uh, Truman Capote. Truman Capote is correct. Eileen Wernos. Eileen Wernos is correct. Uh, Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill is correct. Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln is correct. Uh, Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash is correct. June Carter. June Carter Cash is correct. Edward R. Murrow. Edward R. Murrow is correct. Maxis Murnius Decimus. That is correct. I know it's a real person. Um, okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> uh, Jackie Kennedy. Jackie Kennedy is correct. Uh, Edie Amin. Edie Amin is correct. Harvey Milk. Harvey Milk is correct. Queen Elizabeth. Uh, the first. Okay, correct. <laughs> um... Oh, gosh. Can I still say Freddie Mercury? Or is that taken uh, off the table? No, we've, ar- we've already said Queen Anne and Freddie Mercury. Okay. Uh, bu- 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 you, got, you already got points for those. Oh, J.M. Barry. J.M. Barry is correct. Uh, Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf is correct. Ray Charles. Ray Charles is correct. Uh, Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes is correct. Ooh, good one. 
Um. Oh, let's see here. I gotta have five him. seconds. Oh, dude. Oh. Um. Oh. Whatever. Whatever Leo's name was in the Revenant. Oh, that is not good enough. Dang it! <laughs> <laughs> All right, Todd. Can you name any more? Uh, Edith Piaf. Oh, Edith good Piaf one. Is correct. Le Leanne Tui. Leanne Tui is correct. Oh gosh. Uh, we got. How about uh, King Edward? King name? George. George. King, King George. George. Yeah. yeah, there's no Edward. There's, there's a King George. Like, yeah. what, King Edward was the brother. Was like, what uh, was it? Frank Nash. I couldn't remember his first name, so that's why I didn't say it. Oh, oh. Uh, gosh, you mean John, John, Nash? John Nash. There you go. Yeah, I couldn't remember his first name, so I didn't. Say oh, it. that was. Yeah, let, let's read off some of the others: Muhammad Ali, Jackson oh, Pollock, <laughs> uh, uh, Steve Jobs, Dick Cheney, Vincent Van Gogh, uh, Tanya Harding. Florence Foster Jenkins, Julia Child, Marilyn Monroe, Margaret Thatcher. Names ring a bell. Richard Nixon, Nelson Mandela. Are we ever going to remember that Willem Dafoe was nominated this year? Probably not. Well, I won. All right, man. Yeah, I did better than I thought I was going to, actually, but... Todd is the winner. Not bad. You didn't do as well as I thought you both would. You only got about uh, twenty me. of the seven. I hadn't even. Well, I guess I got the name first name wrong. Of two different yeah. characters. <laughs> and it's. I think it's. It's questionable if Maximus was a real. I mean, I didn't. I, the maybe list that, that wasn't I was his off, name, but I know that that's a that that's a true story. The list that I got it off did not list Maximus. What What's so. the name of the, What's the name of Leo from the Revenant? Uh. uh, Glass. uh Hugh Glass. Hugh Glass. Uh, that was the only other one that's the only one that popped in my head at that point and uh you could have gone with uh him in wolf of wall street jordan belfort oh yeah jordan yeah. belfort yeah how about stephen hawking or solomon northrop oh gosh yeah, i was kind of ignoring like most of the last like <laughs> like six years those are not the ones that come immediately to mind how about mark zuckerberg that yeah, that's that's a good one. Aaron Brockovich. Because we did do the one power ranking of uh, of uh, uh, biopic performances. So a lot. Of I also would have coming to mind. I would have accepted Charlie Kaufman, but not Donald Kaufman. <laughs> oh, but Donald Kaufman is an Oscar nominee. That's true. Posthumously. <laughs> oh, he should have been on our list. <laughs> Greatest posthumous performances of the 2000s. Donald Kaufman. Well, he's being played. He's not playing someone, though. I guess that's true. All right. Well, I guess Todd is going to make me watch another movie. But I won power rankings, so we're good. All right. Let's wrap up this podcast with our quote of the day. Todd, you get to go first since you won. Well, since we were just talking about Nicolas Cage, and I was on uh, the Red and Brown podcast ranking crazy Nicolas Cage performances, 
I decided to get a quote from Nicolas Cage himself. And so he says, he said uh, at one point in an interview, yeah, you know, there's a fine line between the method actor and the schizophrenic. Which I think is pretty much perfect to define his entire career. <laughs> yeah, he, he straddles that line every single time. Uh, it also defines this podcast pretty well. It does. It does. All right, I'm going to go next. Uh, my uh, my quote comes from my submission to our MCU Mount Rushmore, and that is Tony Stark. One of the first lines you hear from him in the first Iron Man, uh, he's about ready to uh, do a demonstration. And he says, They say that the best weapon is the one you never have to fire. I respectfully disagree. I prefer the weapon you only have to fire once. That's how Dad did it. That's how America does it. And it's worked out pretty well so far. So that's a. Uh, I think it describes this podcast, right? It's worked out pretty well so far. I think so. It's worked out pretty well so far. That's how America does it. All right, Zach. <laughs> All right. Well, my quote comes from the French film that was number one on my power rankings, "Man on the Train," which apparently no one has seen. It's too bad. But uh, it's in the middle of a uh, fascinating conversation that the two characters are having, played by Johnny Holiday and uh, Jean Rochefort. And at one point, uh, they walk into um, Monsieur Mansquier's uh, bathroom, and uh, the Johnny Holiday character says, Why do you have two combs and two toothbrushes? And uh, the Jean Rochefort character responds, Well, there are two kinds of men. Those who say, I must buy a toothbrush, I've lost mine. They're adventurers. And then there are those who have an extra toothbrush. And that describes this podcast very nicely, I think. Fantastic. Yeah, it was the only quote that IMDb had from that movie, so. (laughs) (laughs) I'm surprised there even was one. I'm regretting ending with you, Zach. All right. (laughs) Sorry I let you down. And and with that, we bring episode 36 of the Almost Sideways podcast to a close. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Remember to subscribe, rate, review... Um, still, uh, still waiting for some reviews so we can read them on the air. Uh, and, uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks with another podcast. And until then, have fun watching movies. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.